Christmas. You know, on Resurrection Sunday, what we say is, the Lord is risen. Christmas, we say, the Lord is born. <laughs> oh, that was all right. You guys do better on Resurrection, but it's okay. Grateful that uh, you're here. Uh, Merry Christmas. This is, just, it, this is one of my favorite times of the year. It, re- it really is. Not only just because we get to, get, we get to be together as the family of God, but, but to worship King Jesus. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more fulfilling than that. Uh, my name is Billy Waters. I'm the senior pastor here. And I, again, just want to welcome you to Wellspring Church, whether you are in person or online. We want to say Merry Christmas. And we're so grateful that you're here. Want to mention two quick announcements. The first is this coming Sunday on January 26th, we'll have one service. It'll be at 10 a.m. The next Sunday, we'll go back to our normal service times. That'll be January 2nd at 8.30 and also at 10.30 a.m. So join us for either one of those services. Let's pray and then we will uh, get into John chapter one. Lord, we are so grateful that you loved us so much and that you love us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father. And so we ask now, Lord, that you will open up our hearts, that you will fill us to overflowing with your grace and love and mercy. And Jesus, if there's anything that we're holding back from you, Lord, if there's anything that, any walls that we're putting up, may those walls come down in the name of Jesus so that your Holy Spirit can take residence in our hearts. Make us new creations in Christ Jesus. Do that tonight, we pray, Lord. Work in us, we ask. And we, we do pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. A couple months ago, Actually, the date was October 30th. I was taking my youngest daughter, who is nine years old, her name is Hope, to her older sister's soccer game. And as we were going to the park, there, it was, it's a large park with a soccer field. There was two football fields, and then there was other soccer fields off in the distance. So there was a lot of people around. And as we're going to my, one of my daughter's soccer games, I have Hope by me. We're walking towards, and I, I noticed that there's, you know, the peewee football, the little kids playing football. So I stop for literally two minutes, watch two or three plays football, and then I look down and hope is gone. And I thought for sure she went over to her sister's soccer game to watch. So I went over, I looked up and down the sidelines, and I could not find her. And there's a little bit of terror, a little bit of fear, but I thought surely she hasn't gone too far, and surely I will find her. So again, I looked up and down the sideline, I couldn't find her, I ran to the other side where all the players are and the coaches are, I couldn't find her, I came back, I started looking all around the parking lot, I couldn't find her, and then eventually I went to two soccer dads who I know pretty well, and I said, you guys, I lost my daughter, can't find her. You know who it is, it's Hope, she's got blonde hair, and can you please help me find her? Again, we look up and down the sidelines, can't see her. I go into the ditch of the gully. And by the way, this is October 30th, which is the day before Halloween. And I do, do not like that day. <laughs> do not like it. And I'm just thinking all the bad thoughts are going on inside of my mind. I'm thinking, Lord, please let me see my daughter again. You know, and I don't know how to describe the emotion within a parent when you've lost your child. 
ran over to the other soccer fields and the other football fields, and I was looking inside the cars, seeing if I could find my daughter. And as the cars were leaving, I was running up besides them, seeing if I could see if my daughter was in the back seat of one of those cars. And eventually I called Jana, and this is after about 10 or 15 minutes. I said, Jana, I've lost hope. I cannot find her. So she's driving to the field in tears, crying to God, crying out to God, Lord, will you please help us find our daughter? And eventually I called the police and I said, I've lost my daughter. This is about 15 or so minutes ago. I can't find her. Will you please come to this field and help us find her? I can't, I can't find her. And before I tell you the end of the story, I'm going to come back to it. But I will say this. There is nothing more terrifying, more emotional than when a parent loses their child. I can't, I can't describe it. It's impossible to be able to define the emotions that were going through my mind and my heart at that moment. And the reason why I say that is because I want to talk tonight about Christmas, not from the perspective of the wise men, not from the perspective of the angels or the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, not from the perspective of the Virgin Mary or even Joseph. For 20 years, I've always looked at and preached the Christmas message from each one of those perspectives, but I've never preached a sermon on the perspective of the Father. The Heavenly Father, as he looks down from heaven and sees his lost children, what does our Heavenly Parent feel in his heart, knowing that he's lost his kids? So tonight, we're going to be looking at Christmas from the perspective of the Father. Yes, the Bible describes us as sinners. That's absolutely true. But the Bible also describes us as lost. So what is in the heart of the Father, and what will he do about it? to seek and to save that who is lost. So tonight we're going we're to look at what is our condition, what is our situation. Second, we're going to look at what is in the heart of the Father and what does he do in response to our condition. And lastly, how do we respond with what the Father has done for us. So first, what is the problem that we all have? And the, the passage that we're going to be looking at is John chapter 1, verse 10. And the verse says, He was in the world and though the world was made through him, that is Jesus, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now that word in the original language literally is know, to know. And it's not just a mental ascent to some cognitive ideas, like two plus two equals four. It's not that kind of knowing, necessarily. It's much richer than that, much full, more full than that. It's a relational term. When it says it doesn't, he, he, they didn't know, uh, or we didn't know him, it means that we weren't in relationship with him. We didn't know him in that intimate way. And it harkens back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, that when sin entered in the world, when Adam and Eve said, we will be gods for ourselves, we will take matters into our hands, sin came into the world, and the first thing that God did as he was walking in the cool of the day with Adam, looking for Adam, he asks the question, where are you? Where are you? No, he's not asking that because he's concerned about the location. It's, it, the question is coming from a relationship. He's not asking, like, where are you? Because I keep losing these darn humans. You know, where, where did they go? I put them here just a minute ago. Now they're gone. That's not the point of the passage. It's not, the emphasis is not on location. The emphasis is on relationship. The relationship has been broken as a result of our sin taking, taking matters into our hands. And right after we sinned, and the father cried out, where are you? Then all sorts of the consequences of sin were unleashed upon the earth. There was sexism, there was racism, there was animosity, there was hostility, genocide, war. 
All sorts of evil was in the world is a result of our sin. And the consequence of our sin is that we are now lost. That is the problem of the human race. We're lost. C.E.M. Job, who was a British philosopher, he was an atheist and also a socialist who lived in the early uh, 20th century. And keep in mind, he was an atheist early on. Eventually, he came to faith. And later on in his life, he wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. And in it, he said this fascinating thing. Listen, it is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that is, that we are lost because of what we've done. We've rejected the doctrine of original sin, that we on the left were always being disillusioned by the behavior of both the people and the nations and politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. What he's saying is, is the primary problem within our community, within our society, within the world, it's not, a poli- it's not ultimately political. It's not ultimately philosophical. It's not ultimately economical. It's not ultimately technological. Our ultimate problem is spiritual. And as a result of taking matters into our own hands, we are now lost. The primary problem that we have is spiritual. We are lost. We are separated from a relationship with God. And as soon as that happened, everything began to fall apart. One thing that we've learned over the past two years is this. The more that we try to create peace as the human race, the more hostility and enmity there there is. The more that we try to cultivate unity, the more the division and fracturing there is. Because the solution can't come ultimately from within us. The solution has to come from beyond us, above us, because we are lost. That's the problem that we all have. We're lost. Now the question becomes is, is what is the father going to do about that? What is in the heart of the father and what is he going to do? Answer, verse 14 of chapter 1. The scripture says, the word, the word, that is Jesus became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only and the only son who came from the father, from the father, full of grace and truth. That the father sent his one and only son to seek and to save those who are lost, which is us. Now, a couple observations about this passage. Uh, first, the Father sends the Son, and the Son is the Word made flesh. There's no more succinct definition, description of Christmas than that. The Word, Jesus, made flesh. Now, this was a staggering claim, not only for the Greeks, but also for the Jews. For the Greeks, because they believed that as they looked at nature and all of its order, all of its beauty, all of its poetry, they thought it's so beautiful, there has to be some, some logos, some philosophical, immaterial force that's behind all of that. And if we just connect with that, then we'll connect with our true selves. But they believed in an immaterial logos, not a material, or an immaterial word, not a material world, because they believed that the flesh was evil. So as they looked at the beauty of all of creation, they said that there must be some philosophical, immaterial force backing it, and they called it the logos. Now, the staggering claim here is, is the logos, everything that is backing that, has now come in the flesh. And it was a staggering, audacious claim, not only for the Greeks, but also for the Jews. Because the Jews couldn't comprehend a God who is the creator of all things, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, come now in the form of a vulnerable baby. God in the flesh, how could that be? So it broke all of the categories for the Greek and for the Jew. And what God said is that I love you so much, I'm gonna send my son, my son's gonna come in the flesh. The word made flesh. 
veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus has two natures. He is fully God and fully human. And when you look at these two candles up here on the table, they point to something. Every time you see these candles, what they represent is they are in their outward expression of the fact that we worship a God, Jesus, who is fully God and fully human. When you see the candles, it represents the two natures of Christ. And that's what the Father did, sending his Son in the flesh to seek and to save those who are lost. The outcome of that is that now we dwell with God. With, not lost, not separate, but with. Notice, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We shall see his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. His dwelling, he will tabernacle, he will dwell with us. Jesus God, who is full of grace and full of truth. And grace and truth is what we need for salvation. We need the truth. Just like any physician will give you an accurate diagnosis to say, this is your problem, and this is the only cure. So God comes with truth and says, this is your problem, and this is the cure. But he not only tells us why we have angst in our heart, why we have loneliness and bitterness, why we have depression and despair, why we continue to strive after things. He tells us not only what our condition is, but then in his grace, he pursues us. If you were with us last week, we talked about this, this, this formula that oftentimes finds its way throughout scripture. And it happens oftentimes after the people of God have sinned. And God reestablishes or renews his covenant so that he would be with his people. And the phrase throughout the Old Testament is, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, hesed, steadfast mercy, steadfast grace and truth, grace and truth. Commentators for a long time have been saying, if it's so prominent in the Old Testament, where does it show up in the New Testament? Right here. Jesus, who is God, fullness of grace and truth. God is offering, once again, covenant renewal so that he will be with us and we will be with him forevermore, forevermore. The reason why God, the Father, sent his son is so that he would, so that we would be with him, God with us, Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh, the God had seen, hail the incarnate deity, Please is man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Father's heart, to be with us. And this is a theme throughout Scripture. God wanting to be, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God wanting to be with us. Genesis chapter 3, God walking with, God walking with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day. Genesis 28, 15, God says to Jacob, I am with you. Exodus 3. God says to Moses, I will be with you. Judges chapter six, God says to Gideon, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, even though you pass through the valley or through the waters, I will be with you. Zephaniah three seventeen, the Lord your God is with you. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the great commandment, great commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you. And finally, Revelation 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling, his tabernacle, his dwelling place is now with people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. This is what our hearts long for. This is what we were created for, to be with God. And not only with God, but with God's people. There's nothing that satisfies us in a deeper way. If there's a lack of contentment, a lack of peace, a lack of significance, a lack of value, it all stems back to the fact of us, once we, be, once we are with God, all of those things are satisfied because we are with the one who created us and redeemed us. The power of with. I did a wedding about a month ago and at different parts of the wedding, uh, there's different cheers and celebrations. You know, when you get to, I now pronounce that they are husband and wife, what God has joined together. No person separate and everybody claps and cheers. After the vows, the giving and the receiving of the ring, there's usually some clapping and some cheering. But what I experienced at this wedding about a month ago, I have never experienced in the hundreds of weddings that I've done before, at least not to this level. When I got to the end of the wedding and I said, I now present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., I said their name, I kid you not, the entire congregation, everybody stood up and they just cheered and yelled for like five or 10 minutes. They were probably about 150 or 200 people. It felt like there were 10,000 people in here. It was deafening. I mean, just the cheers and the shouts of a bride being united to the bridegroom. And while everybody was cheering with a standing ovation, it made me think about heaven. That all of heaven stands up and, and shouts and cheers, gives the standing ovation when one person turns to the Lord and that person is united to Christ, united to the Father. They are with the Lord and all of heaven shouts praise. That's the power of the with. We were built to be with God and God did not leave us in our lostness, but in the Father's heart pursued us with his love. There's nothing more that our hearts long for. In, a, in Philip Yancey's book um, on prayer, Does It Make a Difference? Now, I read this story and it, and it touched me deeply. Bear with me, it's a few paragraphs, but I want to share it with you. Yancey writes, I've seen evidence of God's presence in the most unexpected places. During our trip to Nepal, a physical therapist gave my wife and me a tour of the Green Pastures Hospital, which specializes in leprosy re rehabilitation. As we walked along an outdoor corridor, I noticed in the courtyard one of the ugliest human beings I had ever seen. Her hands were bandaged in gauze, and she had deformed stumps where most people have feet, and her face showed the worst ravages of that cruel disease. Her nose had shrunken away so that, looking at her, I could see into her sinus cavity. Her eyes molted and covered with calluses. It let in no light. She was totally blind. Scars covered patches of skin on her arms. We toured a unit of the hospital and returned along that same corridor. In the meantime, this creature had crawled across the courtyard to the very edge of the walkway, pulling herself along by the ground by planting her elbows and dragging her body like a wounded animal. I am ashamed to say my first thought was, she's a beggar and just wants my money. My wife, who has worked among the down and out, had a much more holy reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman and put her arm around her. The old woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, the tune that we all instantly recognized. 
Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Don Maya is one of our most devoted church members, the physical therapist later told us. Most of our patients here are Hindus, but we have a little Christian chapel here, and Don Maya comes every time the door opens. She's a prayer warrior. She loves to greet and welcome every visitor and comes to Green Pastures, and no doubt she heard us talking as we walked along the corridor. A few months later, we heard that Don Maya had died. Close to my desk, I keep a photo that I snapped just as she was singing to Janet. Whenever I feel polluted by the beauty-obsessed celebrity culture I live in, a culture in which people pay exorbitant sums to shorten their noses and do other procedures to achieve some impossible ideal of beauty, while 9,000 people die each year from AIDS for lack of treatment and hospitals like Green Pastures scrape by on charity crumbs, I pull out that photo. I see two beautiful women my wife smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit she had bought a day before, holding in her arms an old crone who would flunk any beauty test ever devised except for the one that really matters most. Out of that deformed hollow shell of a body, listen, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit has found a home. God is with her. Now, if you were to see her before she died, many might say that life is a tragedy. Life is a tragedy. But she would look at people who don't know Jesus and their lack of contentment. They're striving in the world for more, more, more. And she would look at that person without Christ and say, no, that life is a tragedy because I have a deep peace that Jesus lives in me. And now she is with Christ. When Christ comes back again, she will have a new and resurrected body and dwell and co-reign with Christ forevermore. Because God is with her. God is with her. We have a problem. We're lost from God and we cannot save ourselves. But this is the heart of the Father. He loves us so much. He sent his one and only son so that we could dwell with him throughout all everlasting. That's what Christ has done for us. Now the question becomes is how do we respond? What do we do in light of this? Finally, verse 12. This is how we are called to respond. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We recognize what Christ has done and we simply receive his work. And then we are united to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We are with God because we accept what Christ has done for us. Now, there's two things that happen when we do that. First, there's a negative and then there's also a positive. There's a taking off and a putting on. The taking off is, we're ta- the taking off is of sin, of shame, dishonor, guilt. That's what's removed. And what's put on is that we put on the righteousness of Christ. We are crowned with beauty. We are co-rulers and co-reigners with Christ. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of us. We are seated with him. We are raised with him. We are alive in him. That's what we receive. 
So that when, G- when God the Father looks down at us, he sees his one and only son. Everything that is beautiful in Christ is now beautiful in us. Not only is sin taken off, but Christ's beauty, God's beauty is placed on us. That is a jaw-dropping promise and is absolutely given to us because of the, the love and the faithfulness of, the, of our Heavenly Father. We just have to receive it. Just have to receive it. There's not only a negative taking off, but there's also a positive putting on, putting on the righteousness of Christ. Now, getting back to the story, I was walking down, actually, I was running down the hill, and I saw the police. I was going to go meet the police, but as I was getting closer to the soccer field, I saw the two soccer parents, the two dads that I had talked to earlier. And between each of them was my nine-year-old daughter, Hope. What had happened is, is she had sat between two of her really close friends, and a blanket was over her, and no one saw her. And when I saw her, this is before that moment, I wasn't sure I was ever going to see my daughter again. But when I saw her, I just looked her in the face, and I just gave her the biggest bear hug. I said, I love you, I love you, you know? Ask for anything, and you get it. (laughs) Whatever you want for Christmas, it's yours, sweetie. (laughs) Everything is yours. Everything is yours. The Heavenly Father did not spare his own son. How will he not much more give us all things in Christ Jesus? For those who are lost are now found. And sin is not only removed, but we get the beauty of the son. And then he says, welcome home. Welcome home. God with us, Emmanuel. And when we receive him, We have eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore. What I'd like to do is I'd close this in prayer. And it's just a posture of receiving. I just ask you to lift up your palms. Just put them on your uh, knees. If you feel comfortable, just arms out. It's just a posture of receiving. You say, why are we doing this? Um, I don't know. Um, Postures, it just works better that way. why, Why did I get down on one knee when I proposed to my wife? Postures mean something. So it's a posture of receiving. Just open up your palms and put them down to say, Lord, let me pray for us. Lord, we just receive everything that you have for us. We thank you that when we were lost, Father, you loved us and you loved us so much you sent your only son to die on a cross for us, to remove our sin and to bestow upon us a crown of beauty. And whether this is our first time in church or our 50th year, Lord, we once again receive from you all that you have for us. We thank you, God, that you didn't leave us in our lostness, but Heavenly Father, you welcomed us home to dwell with you forevermore. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time, I would encourage you before the night's over, tell somebody, tell somebody here, say, I prayed that for the first time this evening because I want to be with Christ forever. Let's continue our prayer. And the nature sees.